Welcome to Creative Brainery's new podcast series, The Intersect. We are all interconnected. Fear not the different, the unheard, the new. The Intersect is nuanced conversations about inequity in Canada and beyond. We explore intersectionality with powerful people and their stories. An added bonus, our resources segment gives you tools to approach and cope with discussions of race and identity at home, at school, and with friends and family. Who are we? I'm Jesse LaHale. I'm Annie O'Hanna. So here we are, having conversations. This is The Intercept. Today on The Intersect, we start by wondering why Canada 150 is more popular than Indigenous 12,000 plus. We follow that up with a focus on the Indigenous blind spot when speaking to intersectional oppression. And we speak to the phenomenal Lynn Daniels, a Cree and Métis woman who belongs to the Kawakatoos First Nation in Southern Saskatchewan. Canada has been very destructive to my family. Canadians have done very destructive things to my ancestors and to me. She is currently one of the directors of instructions for the Aboriginal Department at the Surrey School District. With everything we do, we always need to recognize that we in fact stand on the unceded territories of the Coast Salish peoples, and specifically today, the Kwantlen, the Kaitsi, and the Semiamu. To be clear, Unseated means that the land was stolen, it was never traded, it was never bought, it was not even won in war. So we recognize the injustice that started from that moment. And as the show is called, The Intersect, that we always realize that with Indigenous understandings, that is key to being intersectional. Our relationship with the unseated. We are all dreamers, settlers, and visitors. Tansi Jesse. Tanzi, Annie. I just said hello in Cree. Want to know why? Does it have something to do with our topic today on The Intersect? Correct. To all of our relations, Tanzi. Today we go back, way back, into the most important intersection of all, the Indigenous Intersect. I have a conflicted relationship with the celebrations. I was born and raised in Camels, B.C., where the residential school didn't close until 1996. I saw firsthand how the residential school system affected and still affects classmates, colleagues, and friends. While I celebrate Canada in affording my immigrant parents opportunities, I can't buy into a celebration that has erased Indigenous people. So when you mentioned buy-in, what are your thoughts about taxpayer money in the millions going towards those celebrations? I'm in complete disagreement. I'm sure many of our listeners saw at least one news story or social media post featuring voices that were in disagreement with Canada 150, often referring to it as Canada 150 plus, or in some nations, remarking on the existence of their nations many thousands of years more than Canada's existence. Were these voices just disruptions or was there something more to it? This is something we have to consider. And how, as those who consider themselves Canadians, who either immigrated here or were born here, respond to such claims. This is very much an intersection we need to delve into further. And to do so, three very important concepts need to be examined. Unceded territory, settlers, visitors, 
and the difference between a recognition and being welcomed. And yes, these are all very much related. A story to help us understand. There was once a family, a loving, caring family, who came across a visitor who needed a place to stay. They welcomed this stranger in, and even though there were many differences at first, they got along. As time passed and the visitors started to get more comfortable, they started to outstay their welcome and started to pass judgment on the family who had at first been willing to share their space and their home. An unfortunate spate of illnesses led to some members of the family dying. And as space in the home opened up, the now unwelcome visitor started to take up the space. They changed the rules of the house, changed the culture, the language, and made it clear that the family just had to get with the times, that these changes were actually good for them. The stranger invited in their own family, and soon the original family became secondary to these newcomers. Not long after, the entire community had changed, and the original family, now living on a postage stamp-sized shed on the property, had to send their kids to a schooling system they had no information about and weren't allowed to use their home as they once did. When we speak of unceded territory, we speak to the fact that the land was never relinquished legally. Now, this is a situation more common in BC than in other provinces. But nonetheless, we need to understand that the land we stand on today, the land that we reap trillions of dollars of natural resource benefit from, was never ours and is still not ours. No matter how small and how far the reserves were that we forced Indigenous peoples on, Supreme Court case after Supreme Court case has proven that previous title to the land exists. When it comes to the concept of being settler and or visitor, I know that can be hard to digest for some. I was born in Canada. How can I be a visitor? Well, the way I see it, yes, we are citizens of a man-made political entity called the State of Canada, but the actual territory which Indigenous people were stewards of since time immemorial, that in fact does not belong to us. Yes, we do remain visitors and settlers on that territory. The settler part very much refers to the colonial relationship of Canada from infancy feeding the motherland and settlers and their beliefs, actions and movements acting as a form of terraforming. Why such an extreme word? Because the processes weren't just of movement inwards. As the visitor ends up taking over the house, we as a nation understood assimilation, genocide, and apartheid-like policies that reformed every piece of the territories we stand on. Last but not least, while there are stories of the positive relationship with some early comers with Indigenous people, we know this did not last. And at the end, the opening welcome did not last. Therefore, we cannot say we were ever welcomed here. And recognizing that fact is key. This is, in fact, what we have to recognize, not just the culture, the heritage, or the nation, but the processes of settler colonialism that led to the current Indigenous realities and intersectionality of their oppressions. Love this episode of the Intersect podcast? Head over to iTunes to subscribe and leave a review. You can also find us on Stitcher and Google Play. Even more angering, the complacency that I call the Indigenous blind spot. The story that we told earlier had many intersections that not only existed before, but persist to this day. 
from racism to environmental degradation to classism to a distorted, almost backward form of xenophobia and the endless layers of being everything from an indigenous woman, a two-spirited indigenous person, and so on. It is not enough to suggest that recognizing territory somehow is the magic trick to reconciliation. It is not enough to provide charity and mask it as some form of justice. It is not enough to say the words nation-to-nation status with no actions to back it up. Perhaps the most damning part of the Indigenous blind spot is the media. Watch the media when people talk about the history of a nation, when they talk about oppression, when they talk about rights and privileges. How many times are the original sins of Indigenous genocide brought up? How many times does the media add an Indigenous lend onto the issues of a nation like Canada, especially when those issues are systemically rooted to residential schools or foster care? In many ways, Indigenous people are minimized and marginalized and trotted as cultural tokenism. Well, we will explore this further by listening to the strong Indigenous voice of Lynn Daniels, one of the directors of instruction for the Aboriginal Department at Surrey School District. Confront, unsettle, disrupt, show up, speak up, speak out. So now it's time to welcome the amazing Lynn Daniels, uh, who's here with us today because she's going to provide us with that intriguing, interesting you know, kind of lived experience of an Indigenous woman. Now, I have to put it out there that actually I, I teach in the Surrey School District and uh, and actually have the pleasure and the honor of kind of having Lynn as one of my leaders uh, from the Aboriginal Department. So I want to thank you for coming today. You're such a busy individual, but thank you so much for taking the time and uh, and helping us explore further our relationship with the unseated. It's a pleasure. My pleasure to be here. Excellent. So let's start from the very top and just ask uh, to introduce yourself uh, and specifically more to like your Indigenous roots. I'm Cree and Métis and I belong to the Kawakatoos First Nation, which is located in southern Saskatchewan. It's just north of the capital city of Regina, about an hour's north from there. And um, although I am from there, I never did live there. I mostly lived in Regina, Saskatchewan. And then I came to British Columbia in 1989, mostly because I just didn't want to live my whole life in that one place. And also growing up there, you realize just how, um, you know, your life is so shaped by the social relations between the white and the indigenous people there. And, um, you know, growing up, I didn't know that I was Cree. When I remember, we well, we lived outside of uh, this really small town because, like I said, I'd never lived on, on my First Nation land. And we lived outside of this small town, and we were just like friends with the kids around there. And then one of them was having a birthday party, and they said, but you can't come, they said to me and my, my siblings, because you guys are Indians. And so then I, that's when I asked my mom, like, what does that mean? Are we Indians? And she said, well, no, you're not, you know, you're not, you're, you know, you're half-breeds. And so, and then I, you know, that was the first time I thought, well, I don't really want to be that, you know. That was one of the few times when I thought that I didn't want to be that, you know. But mostly my mom uh, um, really instilled, my dad didn't really talk about it too much, But she really instilled in us the importance of being proud of who we were, you know, and I never tried to 
hide who I was. I know some, I observed my relatives pretending that they were white, but I never pretended to hide my identity or to say I was something different. I, when people ask me out, I would say I'm native or I'm Indian or whatever. Yeah. And I didn't actually start saying that I'm Cree until I was an adult because I didn't even know what kind of native I was because my mom went to Indian residential school. And although my dad didn't go to Indian residential school, his mother did. And I know from talking to her that she had a lot of shame and she rejected that identity. And so, you know, we had this, had a lot of messages from our family and from the, um, our peers at school that it was very negative to be, you know, who we were. And leaving um, Saskatchewan, that was really important in highlighting for me what it meant to be a Cree person because I learned about other First Nations and then I asked like my parents, you know, what does that, what do we do then? Whereas I think when you're in something, you're less likely to ask questions. But on the other hand, I was also part of a teacher education program that was developed for um, Native people. It was called Saskatchewan Urban Native Teacher Education Program. And so I was, I enrolled in that program when I finished high school. And so in many ways, it was very fortunate for me to be in that program because that's when I was exposed to notions such as identity and culture and race and, and all of that. And, and so I guess have been exposed to these ideas then that made me think about them a lot. So I wasn't just living my life. I was like thinking about how should I live my life and how should I live my life as a Native person. And at that time, that's what I thought Native. You know, I didn't even know Cree. I didn't even think of that. Or it wasn't even necessarily part of our discourse at the time. Yeah. So... You know, we would mostly say in the program and, in, you know, and then we, a lot of us got involved in kind of political organizations and that kind of thing from being involved in SUNTEP. And also I was just curious about those kinds of things. So I would see um, notices at the university, you know, there's this group that's meeting this, you know, Marxist-Leninist group or this communist group or this socialist group. And I wanted to understand what that meant. Because I thought that they would might be more accepting of who are Indigenous people, you know, who are Native. I thought they might. And I was right. Uh, they were. They're, the people who were in these left um, organizations, they were very ac accepting of me and my family and, and became lifelong friends. You know, those are my lifelong friends, the people that I met in the left organizations, the non-Native people that I met. There was very few... Indigenous people that were involved in those organizations. Like, you know, there was me and maybe one other person that got involved in that. That's fascinating. So what I'm hearing a lot with that is that you have negotiated your identity. You know, you've had a journey almost of figuring out who you are as a person, which leads me to kind of think of how do you define Canada in that context, especially as the government celebrates Canada 150? It's a good question. Well, you know, like I said, because I had left Saskatchewan and then didn't have a lot of like interactions with other Cree people, but with other First Nations, then it highlighted for me, you know, what it meant to be a Cree person. 
And so then also being a member of a group that's not welcomed in a lot of like non-Indigenous circles, then you kind of get to see like what Canada, what can it, what does it mean to be Canadian to the people who are, you know, Canadians? Because I think that, you know, legally, I guess I am a Canadian, but I have not always been made to feel that this is really my home. And so in many ways, I am like an exile in my own land because I'm not made to feel welcome or at home, you know, in many, in many contexts. And there's, there's a lot of different ways how these things are communicated. You know, like, it's hard to know where to start, but Canada has been very destructive to my family. So Canadians have done very destructive things to my ancestors and to me and to my children. And so, I, you know, on the one hand, because I am a teacher, and because, you know, we like to teach this idea that, you know, we're building a future nation, there is a part of me that is proud to be Canadian. But yet at the same time, I have to recognize that Canada was built on the genocide of the Indigenous people here. So I have to constantly um, recognize that and to express that, that that is an important part of our history to acknowledge and to, um, yeah, it has to be known and to share. It has to be known that this is what built Canada, was the genocide of Indigenous people, and that's what built North America, was the genocide. For our listeners, uh, you, you use words like, you know, what exile, you know, the, the terms being exiled, and I wonder what that feels like, what that looks like. So, and I know there's so much that you could cover, but can you give us a couple of examples of that kind of settler colonial reality where you are made to feel that way? Like, what does that actually look like? Are there is there a policy you can point to or an experience you can point to that, that would allow our listeners to understand that uh, in a concrete way? Well, you know, my parents were very good storytellers. And um, one story that I heard from my mother was that our grandparents were farmers on our reserve, Quakatoos. And she said, she talked about how, you know, her father produced all this wheat and they had a granary on their farm and their, this granary was full of wheat. And he tried to sell the grain like farmers do, but he was prevented from doing so. So on the one hand, Canada, as part of its treaty relationship with my peoples, were part of Treaty 4, um, part of that agreement was to provide the tools and the technologies necessary to promote farming and agriculture among Indigenous people who used to be hunter-gatherer, who used to live in hunter-gatherer societies. And so um, then there was objections from the local white farmers about Indigenous people selling their grain um, in competition with, the, with them when they had been subsidized by Canada. And so then they changed the policy to prevent Indian farmers from selling the grain. So all while, although you could produce as much grain as you possibly could, you were not allowed to sell it. And so my mom talked about, she didn't talk about the policy. I learned this policy as an adult, but she talked about how 
they weren't allowed to sell the grain and that that grain rotted in in the granary and exploded and and uh you know the walls came down and it was rotten grain and there was nothing they could do but so you know we were prevented from creating wealth or making a living you know and so that's what canada did we were prevented from making a living they prevented us from making a living they wanted us to be destitute are you aware in that story of how the white farmers reacted to that like like what was the reaction to you know when when you see farmers literally not being able to sell their grain their the silos i would assume you know kind of exploding out with so much like was there any reaction i don't i wouldn't know what it was yeah That's and there was never any discussion of that i mean that was the end of the story right. like so my mom never said like isn't the government aren't they criminal for doing that or they never you know like that was the end of the story so we had to make the sense of it that we did but see i remember the story so i wanted to know why were they prevented from doing that and so then as an adult then i when i was engaged in my studies etc then i learned about the the agricultural policies and actually in doing my um research on the history of indian residential schools that's when i learned about the policy of uh, preventing the farmers from selling the grain and then i it was like oh you know i have lived this history in a way because my grandparents have have lived that history oh that's really interesting you know you as a person as an adult had to go and find that information so that really is alarming in how we're having this discussion of you have to really look hard to find the real truths that have occurred these things need to be more apparent at a younger age people need to be focusing on research themselves and and being active in in finding out the truth right that's the burden of being a member of an oppressed group is that you are denied your history your history is silenced and therefore your identity is silenced and repressed what are some of the intersections you see in your life with issues ranging from sexism classism to racism etc well i thought this was a really good question because um you know when i was engaged in my in my doctoral studies one of the one of the things you're introduced to in terms of being a scholar an academic and you know holding a degree that is you know doctor a doctor degree is that you know how what does it mean for practice and what does it mean for like living your life and so i had thought that i would be a professor in a university i thought that was the reason why i was studying that i would then you know join a university and be a professor and so i did try that and it was you know there is many reasons why it didn't work out i was far from my family and that was difficult and and there was um there's a lot of like um kind of volume now to universities especially undergraduate students and it's the volume of the marking and it's just like it's too difficult and you don't get to do the things that you really want to do or that you think are really important to do to get your ideas out there and known so then i thought about how well how do i practice as somebody who is believes in decolonizing education and research and you know how difficult will that be to do in a school district and how what other things can i be engaged in that where i 
am communicating the knowledge that I have that I think is important for other people to have in order to decolonize our lives and and the work that we do in education. So I was connected to a woman who does a lot of work on the downtown east side. She was a graduate student when I was, and she does a lot of work um, as a volunteer with uh, an organization called Rape Relief. And she's connected to a lot of Indigenous um, women who are activists um, on the downtown east side. And so she connected me to them, uh, to this one woman in particular. Her name is um, Faye Blaney. And Faye, in the um, last, at the beginning of uh, the year, I think it was like February, March or something like that, maybe later, maybe it was more springtime, they organized these um, discussion sessions for any women who wanted to participate. And it was to understand, you know, what does it mean to be an Indigenous, just to have discussions about what does it mean to be an Indigenous woman in the east side of Vancouver and and um, and the violence that we experience in our lives. So every session would focus on a question like, you know, um, <clears throat> like, in particular, our lives are so shaped by the legislation, the Indian Act leg legislation. And so one of the first questions was, you know, what do you know about sexism in the Indian Act or something like that? And so we talked about how, um, you know, our status uh, as Indigenous people is, you know, subject to this racist and sexist legislation and we looked at, like, what does the legislation say and what does it mean and how, what does it mean to have status and what does that mean then for our ability to pass it on? And really it is, is that we don't, we don't have any ability to pass it on to our children because of this legislation that um, privileges um, male Indigenous people and, you know, underprivileges us and puts us in really vulnerable uh, situations, life circumstances, because of that, of the sexism that's in there in that we don't have rights to live on the reserve unless we have the status. And it's so easy to lose the status because we don't get to pass it on. And so there was, the first session was really interesting because she asked us to think about the lives of our grandmothers. And so then, you know, I was able to talk about how they tried to be farmers. And I'm older now than they, than they lived to be, you know, so they didn't live to be very old, you know. And so, you know, I, they must have died of like, you know, a heartbreak for not being able to ha make a living for their children or to pass on any kind of like wealth to their children. And um, one of the young women there said, Oh, now I understand why my mom never married my dad. And now I understand why so many of my female relatives never get married. And then I was like, oh my God, I was so stupid. Like, if I had not have gotten married, and if I had not indicated who was the father of my son mm -hmm. on his birth certificate, I could have passed on status to him. And that's like that insider knowledge that everybody has that... I was too dumb to ask people, you know. And so it really plays into that stereotype, you know, that Indigenous women, we don't get married, we're not very, you know, attractive or whatever. We don't, we're just single people all the time. There's this idea, Indigenous women are single people. 
they, you know, whatever, they aren't able to hold it together. Their marriages or whatever. They're prostitutes. They're, you know, sluts. They're not very good partners. And, but we have to do those things because we have to survive. But it also shows, like, the completeness of that oppression. So beyond just the isms, that the very fact of passing something on, of just living your life, just, just very generally, is wholly removed from you, from, from multiple generations, right? To the point where even just living your life could be problematic because you just follow the norm of, of getting married, of, of ticking that box. and, and Hating who the father is. And then, absolutely. yeah. Uh, that, in fact, reinforces the oppression rather than actually kind of breaking it down. That, that's just, that, that's very mind-blowing, actually. So, and it's, we've been touching on this the whole time, really. So in terms of non-Indigenous people, right, coming to terms with this, um, understanding their relationship with Indigenous realities, what's your take on that? So, so where do non-Indigenous start with this? Well, that's a really good question. And so I just, I, I mean, I don't know if you noticed how you phrased the question mm-hmm. in terms of that non-Indigenous people are going to be in relationship with a reality right. and not with people. Oh, okay. Interesting. Yeah. yeah, that's a very interesting point you made. <laughs> yeah, well, you know what? Let's say people, actually. I think that might, that, that might be what I was getting at. Okay, right? okay. Perhaps I'm was, glad to hear that. Perhaps I was meaning the experiences of those people. And so, those, and so that the word reality is perhaps quite awkward there. Uh, but really, like, people's experiences. Okay, the, re- the reason why I wanted to highlight that is because um, in my short time at the university, I was there for two years, I... I recognized that there were, well, most of the students I had, they were non-Indigenous students. I only had a handful of Indigenous students in those two years. But but I noticed that there was like a small percentage of them who would write a paper about how much they, you know, had an affinity for Indigenous knowledge. They had such an affinity for Indigenous knowledge and and how they were going to organize their classrooms and the way that they practice teachings by incorporating this Indigenous knowledge into, you know, the perspectives that they would bring in into, into the classroom. And there was, all, you know, like I said, I would notice this, that there, there would be certain students who would just focus on Indigenous knowledge and they would never talk about people. That's right. And I thought, oh, so this, you know, this whole idea of Indigenous knowledge that allows them to separate that from us and, and the knowledge is beautiful and the art is beautiful and the cultures are beautiful and they have so much to contribute. But the people themselves know we don't really want the people in the classrooms or we don't, you know, we don't want to actually invite Indigenous people into the classrooms because that would, whatever. It's, I'm sure they never thought it through, but that was a practice that a lot of them had, that it's preferable to, and even, you know, easy to incorporate Indigenous knowledge, but never realizing that you're separating it from people and not really, and it's another just way of saying, I think, well, we really like your culture and art and all that, but we don't really like you. <laughs> yeah. And so I guess as a teacher then, as an educator, it's certainly something that, that just listening to you makes me realize or makes me really want to then 
uh, reinforce this notion of you know going beyond that, right? Not using cultural portraiture, literally looking at the people. It's it's interesting these days how there's so much focus on residential school or or certain like certain moments of time or, or certain policies, but how often do we actually get to the people, right? The the actual like the the, the root of, of of all of it, right? And that's something that maybe I th- I think personally we have a long journey to still to go uh, to get to the point where that comes first, not necessarily just the the negatives or whatever the the historical moments, but and maybe we can uh, uh, apply that to more than just indigenous all all kinds of realities and in social sciences, social studies where we take on these dates times, but not people. Mm-hmm. It's a really good point. And when you talk about this as much as I have been talking about it, you know, then you recognize certain patterns. Like, you know, that there will be somebody who will say such and such as you're presenting this. You know that there will be a certain response. And because those responses, there's, it's like the common response, then you know there's something to it. And so you think, like, okay. So a common response when I present about the history, the traumatic history of Indian residential schools as a history of violence and, you know, when I present this information, then there is always somebody who asks, when did the last one close? You know, and that's exactly the point that you made is that it's so much more comfortable for people to talk about a date, yeah, than to... And then all in asking that question, too, they're also distancing themselves from, oh, I am someone who doesn't know anything about this. I'm going to portray myself as someone who doesn't even know when the last one closed. And so I can appear to be not involved in this history in any way whatsoever. Is it also fair to say they also think it's so far removed in history? They're hoping, I think. Yeah, because I'm from Kamloops, and Kamloops was one of the last residential schools. 1996 was when it actually closed. That's only 21 years ago. That's within our lifetimes, and people don't realize that. They have that NIMBY kind of idea when it comes to these dates and how traumatic it was and how close in proximity that trauma was. If you have questions about our guests, content, or future topic requests, email us at hello at theintersectpodcast.com. So um, there is this one writer, it'll take me a while to remember her name, but she she developed this notion of a perfect stranger. I don't know if you've ever heard that, right? And so that's also how people are positioning themselves in relation to this history as a perfect stranger to this history. And so if I can portray myself as a perfect stranger, then I have no responsibility in, in what happened in the past or to even do anything about it in the future. Like it's not, has nothing to do with me. I'm, I'm perfectly estranged from anything to do with this topic. Mm-hmm. So another um, common response mm-hmm. is, why do I feel so guilty? Mm-hmm. And all you have to do is Google search that. <laughs> <laughs> Like, why do I feel guilty about, you know, slavery? Or why do I feel guilty about Indian residential schools? And you would be surprised what it says. Oh. <laughs> I'm making a note right now. Oh, yeah, okay. I'm making a note of it. It's, a, it's like it has nothing to do with how you feel. Right. Yeah. 
yes. Yeah. yeah. Your feelings are not central yeah. to this history. <laughs> yeah. 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 And that there is this propensity towards narcissism in asking that kind of question like, oh, this history is so traumatic. It's making me feel guilty. You should not be making me feel this way. You are a terrible person. I should have the right to live my life without ever feeling this kind of discomfort. You know, how dare you make me feel this way? Yeah. yeah, I think that question often is a bit of a suppressing one, meant yeah. to make you stop talking yeah. instead of the word you just use, that discomfort. And I think, you know, I'm, I'm sure you're aware of the, the phrase, you know, the idea of like, there's there's uh, learning in discomfort, right? We need to create those environments at times to allow that learning to go through and not just feel that because you feel bad, you feel guilty, that somehow, I and even to the point of sharing a story. Mm-hmm. So in having someone speak their truth, why should that person in speaking their truth have to worry about, uh, someone else's feelings when they're just speaking their truth, period. Yeah. So I think there's this notion of um, white fragility, white fragility. And that is like this, you know, wanting to represent yourself as like so estranged from this that even, you know, having to hear this is just too much, you know, like, and I've read, um, you know, I, read a little bit about this idea of white fragility. I think I came upon it from a podcast. <laughs> and uh, and then I thought, oh, I want to need to read more about this. And it was about um, in the context of African-American people trying to have a discussion about the violence against uh, young African men by policemen and and also trying to introduce people to discourse and how you talk about things and understand race and what is racism and et cetera. And the reaction of the non-African people would be that fragile, you know, oh, I'm having a heart attack. Like, don't tell me this. You know, I have to go to the hospital. This is giving me a heart attack. I can't. I'm having chest pains. I can't cope with this. You know, so they talked about all these like physical reactions. And so, you know, um, I don't know what it's like to be someone who would not want to confront this history. So I just don't, I don't know what non-Indigenous people should do. You know, I just don't because I am someone who confronted it. So I have no advice for someone. I mean, it was very difficult. It was very difficult to read this history. I mean, when I read the history of Indian residential schools and I only got to 1920 and I was already like so depressed and I knew I had at least another 80 years to go, you know, and that I was just so distraught, like, you know, how how am I going to do this? And then I just persevered. I just thought, okay, I will be the one to do it. And I did it. And so... You know, one of the things I had to try to understand is, you know, why photographs are such, are so key in um, kind of like mainstream culture in, and particular kinds of photographs. Why are those, um, like I said, it's a pattern. They always show certain photographs of the kids lined up in front of the Indian residential school building. And I thought, well, that photograph must mean something because it's always used. You know, there there would there could be other photographs that are used, but it's always so that must communicate something. Mm-hmm. 
And so I did a lot of research into like photography as a colonial technology and read um, a book by, um, oh, it'll take me a while. I haven't talked about academics for a while. So McClintock, Anne McClintock. And she wrote about um, photography as a colonial technology and how um, photography was invented at a time when a universal currency was needed to communicate all of these imperial ideas and racist and, um, you know, classist and sexist ideas about, you know, who was superior and who wasn't. And so photography became really important for communicating that in a really um, efficient um, economical way to the masses of people. And so it, you know, a whole academic discipline developed around that in terms of anthropology, using photographs to um, document cultures and, and then what those photographs were supposed to mean about, you know, communicating what those cultures were about. And so the idea was that, you know, there's this imperial center, uh, which is Europe, and that, you know, the further you are from that imperial center, the more primitive you are, and therefore the less civilized you are, and therefore the less intelligent and developed your cultures are, and so therefore you have no right to exist and have land and use resources for any reason. And so all of those ideas were how um, colonialists and imperialists rationalized their, you know, the rape and destruction and um, genocidal practices against Indigenous peoples all over the world. And so that is what the Indian residential schools photographs communicate in terms of this is a group of children who ha are um, no, long no longer have a history. Their history doesn't count. This is like their moment of being brought into um, civilization and so much closer to um, the imperial center as represented by the Indian residential school building and the white staff that are always like um, containing the student body. And it's kind of like a collection of children that are on display and it's displaying the colonial power of the state to um, take these children from their families and shape their futures, not as Indigenous people, but as some other group of people that will then occupy the lowest uh, ranks of the new colonial order, which will mean they are the lowest class, the lowest um, race, and, um, you know, they will be nothing more than manual laborers in this new Canadian economy. And I think that's what the, and that's what the stated purpose of the Indian residential schools was to train the children to be laborers and work on farms and that kind of thing, work as in service, you know, and that's the kind of jobs that mostly the women got was to work on farms and in, and uh, ironically, in the Indian residential school institutions themselves as cooks and cleaning uh, people and 
those were the only jobs that were available mm-hmm. to most people. And ironically, those were the jobs that my parents did working in the student residence. We could go on forever. I know. I <laughs> Truly. Know. But I think earlier in the, in this episode, I, 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 um, I usually tell my students there's, there's respect in research. Uh, there's recognition in research. Yeah, I just want to end with how important I think this kind of um, technology or, me- multi- or multimedia is um, to communicating to a broader audience the importance of uh, confronting this traumatic history because it emphasizes listening. And I think that um, with the way that photographs were um, used as a tool of colonialism, it emphasized our practices of looking and equating the practice of looking with knowing, and that is entirely wrong. And that um, if I was to give any advice to non-Indigenous people, it would be to rely more on listening and less on looking. And I think in, in you bringing us your stories, uh, your experiences, but also just the amazing amount of work you've done on your own, as you said, like very difficult, you know, confrontational work and having to look at your own history and and, and the history of Indigenous peoples in Canada, that we need to do our research and we need to center it, not around some imperial, you know, European center, but around people. Uh, And so I think while there there might not be a straight answer, which there never is, uh, I really appreciate that. I think you've given us a lot to think about in terms of where we need to start, where we need to go. And really that has to be from, from people and, and to perhaps listen to those stories that, that put us in that level of discomfort and, and to push aside this idea that there is a simple answer. Um, but then from that, so much learning can, can come from that. So, so thank you so much for taking time with us today. Thank you so much. You've been listening to The Intersect with Jesse LaHill and Annie O'Hanna resources, tools to approach and discover the intersections of today's episode as they apply to your world. If we want to recognize, we research. If you want to show respect, you should research. These resources will allow you to begin that journey in that research process. Our first resource for this week is the Truth and Reconciliation Commission final report. It's a mirror to help us reflect on the destructive nature of the Canadian project, while at the same time giving us actionable items from which to springboard change. Second is the amazing artist Lawrence Paul. The worldview of this First Nations artist is, like his powerful and distinctive paintings and other artworks, charged with confrontation, condemnation, and yes, angry humor. He creates confrontation, by Canvas. For our third resource, we turn to Google and a fascinating project to add thousands of nations, territories, and sites to their Google Maps app. For the last seven years, Stephen DeRoy, a member of the Ebb and Flow First Nations in Manitoba and one of the researchers, cartographers working on this project, DeRoy has worked with Natural Resources Canada and Indigenous communities to compile coordinates and mapping information. If you want to truly recognize the land we are visitors and settlers on, check it out. Last but certainly not least, a comic book titled 500 Years of Resistance by author Gord Hill. It takes you through moments of resistance throughout history and the world. While certainly 
not a complete compendium, an interesting place to start and to recognize the struggle against oppression is nothing new and only adds to the need of having an indigenous and intersectional lens. We are so happy that you could join us once again and hope that this was a fruitful discussion for you that allows you to explore our relationship with the unseated in a more meaningful, nuanced, and critical way while allowing you to be empowered. As always, this is just a drop in the ocean, and yet any amount of understanding we can gain, the more intersectional our lens onto the world can become. Confront, unsettle, disrupt, show up, speak up, speak out. This has been The Intersect. Love what you heard? If so, pass along our web address, theintersectpodcast.com, to your family, friends, and colleagues. Be sure to check out our archive section on our website for previous episodes. This has been a Creative Brainery production. Join us next time for another edition of The Intersect. <laughs>